0: Welcome to the Armchair Trader podcast and this week we are talking about the commodities markets in which there has been a lot of action recently. Um, Regular listeners uh, will be very pleased to know that on the podcast this week we have Nitesh Shah who is Head of Commodities and Macroeconomic Research from fund manager Wisdom Tree. Welcome to the show Nitesh.
1: Thank you very much, it's a pleasure to be here.
0: So, um, no, it's great to have you because uh, there's, there, we've got quite a lot to get through today. And uh, and obviously, there's been a lot going on in the commodities markets. Obviously, the big story, certainly this year, um, and indeed, probably the previous year as well, have been the energy markets, particularly oil and gas. Usually commodities that only traders are focusing on, but the high prices have obviously fed into people's day-to-day lives as well. Speaking of the oil market and and the recent OPEC meeting, do you think this is a um, commodity market that's still very much in charge as far as the commodities markets overall are concerned and also um, the wider economy?
1: Yeah, I think what we're experiencing right now is a very unique uh, situation. We've got this energy crisis, uh, which has really started uh, with the conflict in Ukraine from, from Russia. With that, there has been plenty of barrels of oil that have been shunned from generally developed Western markets uh, from from Russia. So there's an adjustment process going on there. Uh, In addition, uh, natural gas from Russia has almost gone down to a trickle coming into into Europe, um, keeping that market extremely tight. So there's a big supply side shock uh, that has resulted as a result of of that conflict. Uh, But on top of that, um, we've seen OPEC's actions actually uh, almost add fuel to the flame, right? They're they're actually cutting back on production. And maybe a little bit of context, uh, you know, and background will go well here. You know, we we started the COVID pandemic with demand collapsing. Uh, At that point, OPEC cut back drastically on production, somewhat belatedly after some initial infighting uh, between uh, members and non-members. But then... When they cut back on production, they managed to constrain supply quite considerably. And you know, after oil prices initially went almost negative uh, for the WTI contract, it bounced back significantly last year uh, and the first half of this year as demand was recovering. But uh, what we're facing right now is central banks across the world, well, not across the world, Japan and China are some exceptions, but most central banks Uh, today are trying to fight inflation and fight aggressively uh, with uh, rate increases and reversing the quantitative easing that they originally put in place. Now that is risking uh, a recession. Now when recession risks present themselves, uh, people are worried about demand for everything that's uh, driving the economy and oil and gas included. So with that, we saw demand starting to weaken in the second half of this year, or at least fears of demand weakening, accelerate. And OPEC have been feeding on that. So once we started seeing some weakness in prices that started in June um, and you know, um, OPEC have been saying, well, the price weakness is out of kilter with the, you know, and the price weakness in futures markets out of kilter with the fundamentals uh, of, of oil in the spot market. And that's why OPEC has decided to move quite big uh, here. And obviously, OPEC is also facing an inflation problem. And it wants to get its revenues higher so it can feed its populations, you know, provide um, you know, subsidized food and things like that to its uh, uh, populations. So that's why OPEC has moved. Uh, but the size of his move is very meaningful. Two million barrels per day of a cut you know, on top of what was already fairly tight market is very meaningful. And we've already seen month to date performance for, say, the WTI contract up uh, close to 13%, uh, which is you know, a very meaningful move.
0: And obviously, inflation, you've mentioned that already, big concern for, well, the wider general population, but also investors. Is it being powered by these high energy prices? Are they the big factor? Or is there is there um, other things at work here as well?
1: Yeah, so it's a combination of things. But if you look at Europe, um, the biggest contributor to uh, inflation today is energy prices by far. Um, but food prices were also high, which was actually a chain effect from what's going on in, in energy prices, right? To grow food, uh, grow agricultural corp- crops, you need fertilizer. And the you know fertilizer is an uh, energy derivative, right? You make it from... Uh, natural gas and, and, oil, and oil products. Uh, so food and energy are very big here in Europe. Uh, but you know for a global picture, it's not the full extent. In the US, I think you know, the, the demand source of inflation has also been pretty strong uh, in that context of the Federal Reserve, the US central bank, having kept uh, monetary policy quite loose uh, for probably an extended period over there and kind of belatingly coming to the party of sort of or, or coming to the realization that uh, it needs to tighten rates. Um, here in Europe, uh, I would say uh, there's a lot more coming from the supply shock of, of, of energy than uh, you know the natural demand being extremely strong, although demand is strong, and that's why the European Central Bank and other Europeans. Central banks like the Bank of England and the Swiss National Bank, etc., are tightening rates at a a very strong rate. Now, what I think is that these um, uh, central banks are probably going to be surprised by how stubborn inflation is going to be uh, because they are, and I think a lot of the market is approaching inflation as that demand problem, uh, that demand is too strong because of monetary Policy having been too loose and fiscal policy adding to that. The failure to acknowledge just how big supply uh, problems are and, in, and the initial diagnosis of supply problems was that they're all transitory. Um, supply problems aren't just going to be transitory. We have reason to believe that supply pro- problems are going to be uh, prolonged and uh, persistent. And Part of that comes to back to the COVID issue, right? COVID later there, just how complex supply chains are globally. And many companies around the world are seeking to make their supply chains less complex. That means localizing a lot of production. So even if the original supply chain that they had that was damaged in 2020 is pretty much restored, that process of moving to a more simpler uh, supply chain by onshoring or bringing things closer to uh, home markets is still go- ongoing. And that will take a number of years and that's actually adding to cost pressure. Additionally, pre-COVID and you know, even before that, really, there was a very strong disinflationary force in, in the world, and that was China. China was integrating into the world economy, it was urbanizing at a rapid pace, and China is not doing any of that anymore uh, to the same extent. And additionally, It wants to focus on higher value add rather than just being a manufacturer for the rest of the world for cheap goods um, and bearing all the environmental cost of doing that. China wants to move up the value chain. So that disinflationary force from China being absent means that I think we're going to be structurally higher on inflation. So these central banks are going to struggle with that that, just by sort of raising interest rates. They're not going to be able to to quell inflation. By raising rates very rapidly, they are likely to risk that sort of recessionary uh, component. And this is all coming, as we talked about earlier, with energy prices as a result of of a war being very high. So the hardship that is faced by uh, households and and firms is probably going to be quite, quite large in this environment.
0: And for investors themselves, so we hear from investors who, for example, are sitting out the market at the moment because they, they're just not feeling confident enough. At the same time, if they go to cash, the, the cash returns are not going to beat current inflation rates. Where can you go? If you're, if you're an investor, where, where do you go in this market right now if you're going to try and, and beat inflation and get those inflation-beating returns? It's, 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 a, really, it's a really tough question.
1: Yeah, I think investors who are focused on traditional asset classes, equities and bonds, um, they would have had a very rough time, right? Um, both asset classes have simultaneously declined by a very large magnitudes. Equities are cyclical; you expect that, but bonds, being the defensive asset, you would hope would do better. But you know, bond yields have shot through the roof, um, and if you live in the UK. Um, we've just been living through absolute disaster when it comes to the, the fight between monetary and fiscal policy and you know, uh, uh, bonds being a huge casualty for, uh, in that. But that's if you're only focused on traditional asset classes. Commodities, um, however, have actually provided very strong year-to-date performance um, in the region of uh, 20% uh, plus. Um, yes, commodity prices have weakened a little bit in recent months, but... If you are looking to hedge inflation, uh, and bearing in mind where the sources of inflation are today, it's clear that commodities provide a very strong hedge uh, because a commodity basket will have energy prices, food uh, well, have energy components in terms of oil and natural gas, and would have food correlation through all the agricultural uh, commodities that are included in, in the commodity basket. In fact, uh, our analysis just shows that um, commodities, looking back at data going, you know, spanning back decades, um, has the highest uh, inflation beta of any asset class. In fact, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, so what I mean by beta is sensitivity to inflation is very positive. When inflation goes up, uh, commodity prices go up. In fact, equities, even though they're cyclical, uh, generally tend to fall when inflation uh, goes up. So... And that's the same case with uh, with treasuries as well. They tend to fall when, when commodity prices are rising. Now, a more interesting uh, point is when we have tried to separate what is expected inflation and unexpected inflation, expected being something we proxy just through the T-bill the T rate, so the prevailing interest rate should be somewhere where markets are expecting inflation to go. Uh, but the unexpected commodities are what you take, actual inflation minus that uh, T-bill rate. The beta for between commodities and un, unexpected inflation is even higher than the expected inflation. And no other asset class is like this. And I stress, we're living in a world right now of inflation surprises. Only commodities are capable of hedging against those surprises. Uh, we've done the same sort of analysis between uh, for treasuries and the expected-unexpected inflation. And Treasuries actually do have a positive beta for the expected inflation, but the unexpected is negative. So if you want to, live, if you want to endure this world of inflation surprises and shocks, commodities are possibly the best place to uh, hedge.
0: Talking about that, there are obviously a lot of investors looking for wealth preservation, capital preservation in this environment. Um, they're seeing that getting eroded by inflation, as I've already mentioned. Cash, possibly not the best option right now, although rates are going up. Gold has always been that sort of traditional place to go. I mean, some people obviously go to the Swiss franc, but gold was always touted as that market that you went to when this kind of thing happened. And last time you know, inflation was like this, I think it might even have been before my professional career started. So um, this is kind of new territory for um, a lot of investors now. Is gold still that sort of reserve you can go to during a high inflationary environment? Yeah, uh,
1: great question. And and what I would say is gold is a fairly complex asset. It's less like a commodity than any other commodity. And in fact, I would say it's more uh, like a uh, foreign exchange. Uh, But uh, it has many traits of foreign exchange. It's used in a sort of monetary uh, capacity for several millennia. But it's very different to what called fiat currencies, like dollar, yen, etc., in the sense that no central bank controls its supply. And that's why a lot of investors like gold, because its supply can only be increased at the same rate at which mining activity occurs, which is quite constrained. Um, so when we saw you know, the balance sheet explosions from the uh, Federal Reserve, the ECB, Bank of Japan in the, in the early days of COVID, uh, you could see that Gold prices rose substantially as that alternative to these currencies that were being debased. So there is that wealth preservation factor. Um, but you know, we've past COVID now, uh, well, the worst of COVID, hopefully. And um, you know, in the, in the last year or so, yes, gold prices have uh, have declined. Now, once again, I'd say gold is that uh, you know, complex asset class, and to demystify some of that complexity. Uh, we have developed a model for, uh, you know, describing gold price behavior. And from that modeling work that we've done, it's very clear that gold is um, related to treasury yields. So as treasury yields rise, as in bond prices fall, gold gold prices tend to fall. Uh, when dollar rises or appreciates, uh, gold prices tend to fall. When inflation uh, rises, uh, gold prices tend to rise. And when there is investor enthusiasm about regarding gold, investor sentiment arises, and we measure that using speculative positioning in gold futures, gold prices tend to rise. That Those four things pretty much can really describe most of gold price behavior. Now, if we look at those things in turn, bond yields are shot through the roof, dollar is appreciated to, to a 20-year high. So there's huge headwinds facing gold. So even though inflation is at multi-decade highs, it's facing these other two headwinds. So net-net, yes, the, my model does indicate that there should be downward pressure on gold, despite the fact that inflation is, is this high. And in fact, gold has actually performed better than what my model would suggest. To put in the context, in the month of... September, my model would have indicated that gold prices should have fallen in the order of twenty percent year on year, uh, whereas it only fell around five percent. So what it, what's happening is that there's there's some other factors that are helping support gold right now relative to those four things that that are predominantly driving gold prices historically. And what we are seeing some huge strength is in the physical market. So, if you look at to China, there's lots of demand for gold right now because gold's tra- trading at a premium in, in China. There's also the, all this recessionary risk, once again. Gold performs well in recessionary times. And therefore, um, with the bond yield curve inversion, which often indicate, you know, uh, is a precursor to in, in recessionary periods there is that little bit more support offered to, to gold in, in in this in this environment. And once again, it's all centred around the, the way you view, gold is viewed as a wealth preservation tool. And so it is kind of living up to that, although it's facing very severe headwinds at this point in time.
0: And we, I mean, we have a model portfolio. We have several model portfolios, but one of them is is long gold and has been long gold for some time. Rationale for that is partly because during the great financial crisis, gold didn't didn't really rally substantially until much later than the actual dislocations that we saw in the financial system. But there was a big bull market for gold and silver. I think it was 2010, whereas the original crisis started at sort of the back end of 2008. Do you think there's scope for something like that? Or do you think that gold is actually, relatively speaking, more expensive than it was then? And that that, that kind of... I know there's always a bullish analyst will come out and say, Oh yes, gold is going to you know two thousand dollars an ounce or even higher. I've seen some crazy forecasts out there. Or do you think that's just unrealistic? I'm just I'm just thinking now because we're seeing some dislocation in the credit market as well. Maybe not on the scale that we saw in two thousand
1: and eight. Yeah, I think uh, there's plenty of potential for gold to go higher. Um, uh, as you say, the, the gold isn't like a um, it's not a leading indicator, it's not even a coincidence, you know, in terms of rising when the stress rises, it tends to rise a bit later. And usually when, you know, it's obvious to see that there is a recession on the ground and there is physical, you know, you can visibly see the hurt in the economy. Right now, we're talking a lot about recessionary fears, right? I know the US is technically in a recession, but it's not in a recession by broad measures like unemployment. Once you start to see stresses in the labor market in the US and once you start to see the visible pain that the energy crisis is really inflicting on on, on households in in Europe in the wintertime, I think there's a lot more um, movement towards gold we'll see. And already in the physical markets, that enthusiasm for gold has already picked up.
0: Uh, I wanted to move off, well, slightly off commodities now and, and talk about the energy transition. This is obviously the the process that we're seeing underway now where where, um, governments and companies and even the uh, energy giants are are focusing much more investment into alternative sources of energy away from the uh, obviously expensive oil and natural gas markets. It's obviously a very complex market. Um, The level of take up uh, differs from country to country and region to region. From where you're sitting, what do you you know? Where do you see the bright spots in this market? And for example, you know, there's a lot of talk about wind power, solar power, large-scale energy storage. I mean, what's your take on it?
1: Yeah, I think the key thing to note is the climate targets that um, are legally binding are pretty um, um, ambitious, and the policy dynamics today are nowhere near. Uh, matching that that ambition. Um, So we've got a a big disconnect. Policy will have to tighten up and tighten up rapidly. Today, at a a continental level, I think only the European Union has only been sort of one of the kind of regions that are really acknowledging that big uh, shortcoming. You know, their ambition is to reduce greenhouse gases by 55% relative to 1990 levels by the year 2030. And, but there are calculations so they can only get to around 40% on the current course. So they're trying to plug that gap and they've come up with a legislative proposal. I think a lot of other countries around the world would have to come up with these sort of things. But it's, it's, what is clear from when you analyse where the gap is and how to fill it is you need everything. You need to throw everything at it to get to to, to, uh, you know, to where we need to be. So it's a lot more solar, a lot more wind, a lot more geothermal even natural gas, uh, which is a fossil fuel, will be needed because it's less carbon intensive than uh, coal and oil and is therefore needed as a transition while you're building everything else out. On top of that, you need uh, hydrogen electrolyzers, And you know, what we know is all of these things are infrastructure heavy. They require lots of metals uh, to build out. Um, and even on the downstream side, you know, not just producing the energy in, to start off with, but how you consume the energy. For example, in cars, um, internal combustion engine vehicles clearly don't cut it. Um, electric vehicles are a fraction of the life cycle greenhouse gas emission of in uh, internal combustion engine vehicles. Once again, they're very metal intensive. Um, at least three times as much copper, and you need nickel and cobalt and all these things that don't even exist in regular cars. So. The way we see energy transition, if you're trying to play this, metals are the place to go. And guess what? Metals are in a bargain right now. Uh, the prices have been falling quite drastically uh, during the course of this year. And the inventory of uh, the of metals are very, very tight. So we see metals as a really sunny spot in terms of how to play uh, the energy transition. In addition to that, uh, we believe that all the uh, technologies that Health, uh energy transition uh, are, are looking good. So if we think about energy storage, uh, in terms of uh, storing the energy that's produced from renewable sources, because it's a very variable production, batteries are needed for for smoothing that, con- that consumption-demand uh, balance, but also they're needed in cars. So uh, anything that's present in the battery value chain, we think is really great. Uh, One key thing that's possibly ignored uh, by many people in in that is recycling of batteries. Recycling is a very, very tiny market right now and it's going to grow to something very big because that circular economy is going to be needed in in the battery world. So that's uh, Mm -hmm. possibly another one area, but I I could go on on this topic for probably hours. So, I mean, uh, but I have to do so, but if you want to pose another question. (laughs) (laughs) Do you
0: think uh, there's enough political support coming in, in the UK and other European governments for the, for the green energy revolution, or do you think more needs to be done? Clearly more needs to be
1: done because, the, as, as I mentioned, the, the, the policy goal is here, policies in place are here, the gap is wide, and the time to deliver on that isn't very long either. Um, building our infrastructure for this, uh, energy transition takes, takes some time to, to do. Right now, carbon emissions are rising rather than falling. And generally, the European Union's success in reducing uh, its carbon emissions is simply being to uh, stop making things in Europe and import it in from China. So the carbon is going up elsewhere. So the, the gap is very wide. Right now, the, the energy crisis has uh, thrown a bit of... You know, disarray into the policy formulation we've seen in the UK, sanctionings of, you know, uh, of, of coal and gas and uh, uh, oil uh, production, uh, which goes counter to the energy transition that, uh, uh, you know, has been hoped for. And, you know, it's a little bizarre because, Building the infrastructure for all those things it just takes as long as building the infrastructure for wind and solar, etc. So, you know, it's somewhat misplaced, I think, uh, some of that, uh, that movement there. Also, in, in, in the European Union, you've got um, uh, repower discussions, uh, repower EU discussions, which are the conversation to or the, the aim to uh, wean off Russian uh, hydrocarbon uh, energy sources Now, within that, there's a lot of stuff that's propelling energy transition, uh, because that's part and parcel of that. But also, there's been a bit of softening up of things um, as the European Union is desperate to get hold of energy molecules from any other source. So there's a little bit of a mixed bag going on in in, in the European policy. Right now, repower is dominating parliamentary discussions. uh, That will move quickly to... Uh, fit for 55, which is bringing down that to that 55 percent, uh, you know, greenhouse gas emissions reduction. Uh, once that starts to take place, I think we'll go back on the course in terms of getting uh, more policies that are con- conducive to the energy transition.
0: If you think about it, there's got these big energy companies are obviously now starting to invest more heavily in their green energy strategy as well. From the perspective of an investor, do you think that these these kind of companies will provide quite a lot of exposure to this new green energy sto- story? Or do you think it will be more a case of new companies, you know, new up-and-coming, probably mid-caps at the moment, um, that will become the new energy giants of the future as this technology feeds through, just as some of these original oil giants were created back you know, in the 19, 1920s and 1930s when the the fossil fuel boom originally started?
1: It's a great question. And it's very really hard to predict how quickly uh, these companies will pivot and uh, you know place emphasis on uh, newer energy versus uh, old energy. Um, so far, what we have seen is the likes of Exxon and uh, Royal Dutch Shell. The, the, the reason for being more present in energy transition and developing a net zero pathway has been more because the courts have forced them or uh, you've had activist investors um, you know pushing that agenda so it doesn't seem like the most sort of genuine and natural uh, transition from, from their standpoint so far they've been you know more forced to do it but in, in, you know it may be at some point it may drive an epiphany right they may realize that this is where the energy world is going and holding on to the existing assets and investing heavily in those existing assets may leave them behind in, in, in the world that we're, we're entering into. Um, A lot of the energy giants have been uh, disposing assets, traditional assets uh, and, you know, doing uh, share buybacks and things like that. But their rate of investment in some of the newer clean energy assets hasn't been matching what they've been disposing uh, as well. So at the moment, it looks like I think newer players who have a genuine interest in developing the technology and progressing that market will be the key players of tomorrow, but you never know. Some of the traditional players may start to pivot at a faster rate, uh, recognizing what's at stake.
0: And uh, finally, I just wanted to ask you about, we've talked a lot about energy on this podcast already. Um, uh, We have touched on gold and uh, metals. Do you think there's any other commodity markets from, from your perspective that have been doing well or seem poised to do well this half?
1: I think all commodities uh, generally have their sort of uh, micro-stories. I touched on it earlier on, but uh, agricultural commodities, because of their close connection with energy through the fertilizer channel, for one, but also uh, a lot of agricultural commodities are used as a feedstock into biodiesel, uh, biofuels, uh, so with the energy demand, probably not there, uh, the grain demands or the sugar demand or, or, or you know the agricultural uh, product demand. I think agriculture has uh, some strong tailwinds there. Also, um, it's affected by the the war in a more direct way because uh, Ukraine and Russia are the breadbasket of Europe. There is a grain deal right now that Russia has offered to for the safe passage of grain out of Ukraine, but uh, it's increasingly looking like that. That will lapse at the beginning of uh, November with the escalation of of that war in in, in recent weeks. But in addition to that, we are facing a La Nina weather pattern. And what I mean by that is there's a body of water in the uh, Pacific when it cools below a certain level, it changes world trade uh, wind patterns. And when that happens, uh, weather is affected. Uh, Some places that are supposed to be wet become dry, places that are supposed to be dry become wet um, and cooler, uh, and that, that causes uh, problems with growing uh, crops, so yields can be affected as, as a result. So agriculture is a clear area uh, where we see uh, some, some optimism, uh, uh, especially after recent pullback in, in prices in, in, in recent months. Um, we talked a little bit about metals, and obviously that's more of a longer-term story for the energy transition, but on the ground right now, today, what we are seeing is most uh, metal inventory is significantly below average. And talking about sort of with nickel and aluminium, inventory on the LME uh, is close to 70% below its five-year average. Uh, So right now, while markets are focused so heavily on demand destruction from recession, uh, what's on the ground is a picture of a much more tightness. When the market recognises this, I think there'll be a potential for uh, quite a substantial uh, price increase, um, as, especially as short positions in those uh, metals unwind.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you very much indeed, Nitesh, for coming on the podcast this morning and, and giving us some of those insights. It's really good to get your perspective on commodity markets and uh, hopefully get you on the podcast again in the future to uh, brief us again once we've seen some of these developments play out.
1: Thank you very much. It's been
0: a pleasure. You've been listening to the Armchair Trader podcast. Make sure you visit our website www.thearmchairtrader.com for your daily dose of financial markets news and sign up to our free newsletter there.